So hello, welcome to Misogynoir Transformed, the podcast, otherwise known as Transforming Misogynoir. I'm your host, Moya Bailey. I coined the term misogynoir in 2008 while writing my dissertation. Misogynoir describes the anti-Black racist misogyny that Black women experience and that people read as Black women experience. Uh, Please join me as I talk with the people who were instrumental in proliferating the word, um, thinking through the word, challenging the word, and challenging misogynoir and all of its manifestations out in our world. If you take a listen, you'll get to meet some of the people who, for me, are real movers and shakers, digital alchemists, if you will, who are creating the world we want to see with the media they create and curate. So uh, sit back, take a listen, and join me for this next episode of Noir Transform. Welcome back to another episode of Noir Transformed, the podcast. I am so excited to be joined by the Dr. Bianca Moriano, an award-winning educator, curriculum writer, facilitator, and sexologist. She is a foundress of the Women of Color Sexual Health Network, the Latinegras Project, Anti-Up, Virtual Freedom Professional Development School for Justice Workers, and hosts latinosexuality.com. She has written several curricula that focus on communities of color, what's the real deal about love and solidarity, and communication mixtapes, speak on it, volume one, and wrote the sexual and reproductive justice discussion guide for the NYC Department of Health and Mental Hygiene that was published in 2018. I think I'm gonna add in there that I know that you um, had a hand in the Crip Camp curriculum and did all to get clear on what disability justice practice is, uh, what disability justice self, what disability self-determination and social emotional learning competencies are. And she received an honorary PhD for her work on justice, equity, and inclusion in the U.S. sexuality field in May of 2020. So, uh, Bianca, in the in the acknowledgments, you are listed as Dr. Bianca Loriano. So <laughs> it is uh, really a pleasure to to talk to you today. And I wanted to start with just how did you get interested in the topics that you're interested in? Where does sexual health disability justice come into the digital for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a great question, Moya. And I think, you know, I grew up in, I was born in the late 70s. And so I grew up as a teenager in the early 90s. And, you know, hip hop was like the thing. And as, you know, a kid who was a 
Puerto Rican immigrants who left the island to come to the States, there was a riff between me and like seeing myself um, represented. And, you know, that being the culture that I grew up in was like an East Coast hip hop culture, um, which really grounded me in a lot of things. You know, like hip hop lyrics were just a little different than they are today, where people openly talked about pregnancy and using condoms. And, yes. uh, you, know, you know, even West Coast hat, like, like rap, Skilo was like, I wish I was a little bit taller, right? So it was a different kind of um, conjuring and foreshadowing and, and conversation. Um, and so that was really where I learned a lot about sex and sexuality from outside my home. Inside my home, my parents were like big hippies and they had the books, Our Bodies, Ourselves, and they had the joy of sex, but they never talked to us about it. So I had that very weird experience where parents are like, well, here's some resources, but we're going to be silent about it. And that's going to give you the message that we don't talk about it in this family. Um, and so this was also at a time, it was like the early 90s, where we were starting to see a lot of um, immigration from Central America because of wars, civil wars in like El Salvador and Nicaragua and the Sandinista movement and all this other stuff happening. Um, and there were migrations into the area that I was in, which was in Maryland. People lovingly call the DMV, DC, Maryland, Virginia. And which is where I, went, I met you at the National Women's Studies Association, Eastern whatever conference thing um, <laughs> for the East Coast. And, um, you know, it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, I've missed something because everybody's now talking about uh, Latino people having teenage pregnancies and being teenage parents. And um, and I didn't have friends who were parents, you know, th that wasn't my experience. Um, but nobody was also talking about it with me, right? So there was just no discourse. And so I think that lack of discourse, but access to some resources, again, we did not have the internet, you know, <laughs> so like it wasn't that in a place. Um, like I remember looking at pictures of in, in um, the joy of sex. And I was like, are these my parents? Did someone make a book? <laughs> you know, and like that, that made sense to me. My dad's an artist. Like it, I just was like, oh, maybe one of his friends, you know? Um, but I also was one of those kiddos that like, you know, when I started puberty, I really just dreamed of having, um, of, you know, being someone who owned a space where, I helped sex workers get paid well. And I had, you know, I would make these little books from the, uh, you know, JCPenney or Sears catalog they would send us. I would cut out pictures and be like, here are the people that we have. And, you know, here's their pricing. And like, you know, this is the environment in the room that they're in. Like, I just like conjured this vision of like, people should be able to be safe and comfortable and have what they need. Um, without even understanding words like brothel or words like, you know, prostitution or sex work or anything of that nature just really made sense to me that, um, that that's what people do. And that's, yes. that's me. So, I love that. Yeah, so like 13 year old Bianca had those kinds of dreams and also was also like, but where do I fit in? And I would turn around and be like, oh, there's TLC. Oh, there's, you know, some other Cool J songs. Oh, there's that. And so there was also like the colorism of it all, right? Like I was a light-skinned broad. I had the ability to straighten my hair. And so I saw myself um, affirmed in really specific ways um, that, you know, 
helped me figure out stuff, but also didn't help me understand the power that I had as like 15 year old Bianca, who was like five, eight and a size, you know, 12 and other people not seeing me as 15 year old Bianca. Um, so a lot of what we're hearing today around predatory behavior, um, and just not understanding that like, oh, I do have power in my body. That's why I'm getting this attention but I didn't know what to do with it. So I misused that power. And so that was really, I think the drive that's kept me in this work is figuring out like, what did 14 year old Bianca need? What did mm. Bianca need? Um, and also how did Bianca find her people, right? So it was really hard to build community when you have a very clear vision of like wanting to go into sexuality work and people just being like, oh, that's public health and kind of like patting me on my head. And I was like, nah, it's not, I don't care about epidemiology necessarily you know I don't care about nutrition in that way like I, I'm really talking about like behaviors emotions what we do with our bodies um, and of course they're connected all those other topics but I was like no 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 I need a more specific thing I want to hear about something else um, so yeah I went to the University of Maryland College Park and made my own major after switching majors three times in my junior year and I found faculty member who would you know counsel and mentor me around okay well let's look at what's happening in Latin America let's look at what's happening in Spanish-speaking communities with regards to access to contraceptives or sexuality care um, and that's really been how it went for me where I was like okay this is what I want to do this is what I need to learn um, and then from there, I just had this vision that nobody was going to listen to me talk about sex or take me seriously because of how I looked and because I was young. And so I needed to get all these degrees for people to believe me, which is how I went to graduate school. So I got a master's degree in, at NYU and survived 9-11 my second semester, which totally, it's just, it's bizarre. So I have a lot of compassion for students who are going to school during a pandemic. Absolutely. There's no script, you know, there's no, there's nothing. Um, and then, uh, you know, coming back home after September 11th, because my parents were like, we're scared for you live in New York City. <clears throat> so moving to DC, which then I was heavily recruited into a women's studies program at the University of Maryland, which, um, you know, we hadn't met yet. I feel like we started the women's studies journey probably at similar times. And, um, you know, I had a 4.0 GPA and there's a video about me talking about this on the internet, you can find it. And then I was pushed out by the women of color faculty and chair because my writing wasn't good enough. And, um, and they had told me, if you don't pass this paper, we're going to have to push you out. So I knew, but also it was hard to like explain that to my dad who was like, but you've been in the program for three years and everybody's seen your writing and everybody, like they passed you on this exam and you got A's in all your classes. What's happening? Um, and so that was really one of those moments where I was like, my life totally shifted. Um, I told myself I needed a PhD to do this work, but I had no idea what that meant. Um, and when you're recruited, people aren't really explaining things to you. So like, I can totally see how I was belligerent and like subversive, running around calling people by a nickname in the hallway. That's not something you do. <laughs> like, but nobody pulled me aside and was like, you can't call me by my first name. I'm Dr. Whatever here. Um, so, you know, the mentorship wasn't there, nor was like the wanting to retain me in a particular way. And you know, I think after I was ready to think back on what I wanted to do with the training that I had from women and gender studies, that's when you and I met. Um, 
at the National Women's Studies East, I think it's the Eastern something, it's called Eastern something, um, where I presented on like, this is the first time I'm coming back to this field. And I'm talking about this really traumatic experience that I had. Um, and it was a panel of people having traumatic experiences. <laughs> so I talked about like, what can I do next? Here's what my paper was about. I still really believe in it. Um, and it was about working with, you know, men from the Spanish-speaking Caribbean and incorporating these feminist theoretical frameworks and approaches to understanding how they are defining sexual and intimate relationships for themselves. Um, that was not a welcome topic. I was told this is a women's studies program, i.e. we don't study men. Um, and I'm like, but a majority of women are having sex with men. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, and so, yeah, and talking about that paper and what was possible and what was next, I think really showed up um, for me as well. And then, you know, by that point, I had the internet. Um, so the internet really changed my connections to other people. Um, by that point, I was back to living in New York City. So I had a different, a range of opportunities. I think after I met you there, um, I started to follow the crunk feminists that you were also really active on the blog. And um, and that was where I just like, was like, okay, Moy is the person that I am down with. You know, it was just really easy to be like, we're queer, you know, we're from, you know, I, I claim Maryland is up South. So I was like, we're both from the South. Yes, I, I support that. The sweet tea line. Um, yes. <laughs> so yeah. So that was really also how I chose to stay connected was through the internet. And you know, by this time it was like the early two thousands, mid two thousands. Um, yeah. And so the internet just really changed the work that I was able to do, the people that I was able to reach. I started a blog where I was writing about sexuality and people of color, and I was talking about my own sexuality experiences. Um, and it was one of the first times that people of color were reviewing high quality sex toys. And, you know, I no longer do that, but it was one of the places where people really found me. They were like, I've been thinking about if I should drop $120 on this thing. And you just convinced me not to, because there's one for $80 over here or whatever it is. Exactly. So that was really great. I was able to get sponsors to, you know, donate um, toys to my readers. So it really was an amazing way to like stay connected to people and also shift my focus to really talking about a more pleasure centered focus of what, what wasn't happening. And I remember, um, I'm sure you have an experience like this too. I remember putting into a Google search engine, the words Latino sexuality in quotes, cause you know, I learned how to use Google, right? Uh, not right, but like to its most <laughs> optimal use. Um, and then clicking, clicking images. And I just remember seeing pornography. I remember seeing um, not, nothing that really outside of that, right? And we're not talking about like quality, equitable, <laughs> unionized pornography. We're talking about that online free porn that just sucks you in and is deeply racist and, and all the things. And I remember being like, okay, this needs to change and slowly adding images to my blog and the places where I was at online and slowly seeing that shift over a period of time. Um, I was like, oh, this Google thing does really work. You know, it was, it was one of those moments where we were like, Google's just trying to sell us on this. And I was at the University of Maryland. So we kind of got the rollout the first time of like Gmail and, and the suite of whatever. Um, and then I was like, oh, look at how this is, oh, it's all my stuff that's shown up here now. And 
<laughs> I didn't know the analytics of it all back then. I don't I don't know if they did too, but um yeah, so that was a really interesting thing for me to to see. Um and also to have in my archive of like how I literally changed the images that showed up on the internet in the early around Latino sexuality. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I was born non-disabled and, but I made friends with disabled people. So that was an intentional move. Like I was like, oh, I, you know, when I met Stacey Park Milburn, you know, we were in Detroit at the AMC, the Allied Media Conference. And I remember being like, I don't have a Korean American friend. I don't have a friend who's disabled. I don't have a friend who talks about this stuff so openly, who's closer to my age. Um, and we just stayed homegirls uh, ever since. And I've, you know, she was also from the South, North Carolina. So there were just a lot of ways that our identities connected and really brought us closer. Um, and so when I got my diagnosis five years ago after my mom died of my disabilities, I didn't have this fearful reaction. I didn't have this mourning or grief process that I think happens for a lot of non-disabled people when they do experience a debilitating um, thing. I had a lot of relief that I finally had a diagnosis and I had a lot of joy being like, I know plenty of people who live a thriving life and who are disabled. And so, um, you know, I'm really grateful for my community for that. Um, and, you know, when I started my PhD program at Women's Studies, I was with Dr. Angel Miles, who was the first uh, disabled person to enter into what seemed like the university, but the department. And, you know, we are still friends. Uh, we're still homegirls. And so witnessing her crip rage um, and all the, the stuff she had to deal with, um, we were in a cohort. We were a cohort of four. And so um, I learned a lot about ableism from Angel Miles. I learned a lot about the racialization, the, the poverty that comes with disability. Um, and that just, you know, expanded when I continued to read your work. And, you know, those connections that you were making around disability and Octavia Butler. And it was so funny. I remember I would talk to people about your work who knew it. And they were, and, you know, they were like, that's not how I understand Moya's work. And I remember like, oh, maybe I have to go read more about it. You know, but I would say to people things like, yeah, Moya's doing this really dope work around like uh, speculative fiction, focusing on like Octavia Butler and looking at, you know, the ableism that is just upheld in some of her really important stories. And I was late to come to sci-fi. And so I came through Octavia Butler um, and I slowly built up to her more hardcore science fiction fantasy stuff. So I started with like, Kindred, which I, you know, I know it's a faux pas to say it's not my favorite. Um, not my favorite. <laughs> so I never taught it. here. <laughs> so yeah, I was just like, I don't like this character. I don't, you know, I was like, why are we talking about white people right now in this way? Um, so that's really how I was feeling about it. Um, but it's one of my least favorite books. Anyways, I had read um, the Parable series and then I jumped immediately to like Lilith's Broad, which was like a significantly larger fantasy world, but it rocked my world because I was like, I'm being challenged to really think about reproductive justice in this futuristic way of, is there still body autonomy if we are forced to work with the uloi? You know, is like, is there ever body autonomy when your body is colonized? And that really connected for me as a Puerto Rican who is displaced from my homeland and, so, you know, reading your work and talking about like, here are all the ways that Octavia Butler, a disabled black writer, um, was also grappling with 
ableism and and how it showed up in her work and people will be like i don't think that that's what moya's work is about you know and i'd be like really oh i think it is you know so i, I got to where i was like am i misunderstanding because i'm not supposed to be in a phd program like it was just that kind of stuff where i was like maybe that's why i got kicked out because i understand <laughs> but no you completely yeah. understand <laughs> Um, but, you know, so then other people didn't understand. And that was when I was like, okay, we're doing next level stuff. Like, people just needed more handholding and we were not doing it. And, and you know, here we are now. So I feel like here that- Here we are now. And what I love about what you've shared is the importance of relationships that like really helped uh, one, make you not fear becoming disabled relationships that taught you, you know, important information about other people's lives. And I'm curious about how you see relationships playing out in both the digital space and then IRL, because, you know, those are different, but it seems like for you, the connection you have with the people who were reading your blog feels very different from the way followers and influencers operate now. Yeah. Yeah. So I had my own blog, but it wasn't a big one, right? Like I knew like at the time there was like feminist and I can't even think of all the other ones, you know, but all of those ones. And, you know, Sadette Harry was writing under Black Amazon and we had BFP who I don't know if she's come out with her full name yet, but like Brown Femi Power. And so I would just see that happening like Megan Ortiz, <clears throat> and so I was in New York City and I was like, Megan and Sedet are in New York, you know, and I follow their blog. And, you know, so I really tried to be strategic. And I was like, how can I demonstrate that one, I'm not just a fangirl, like I want to be in community, right? Um, which there's nothing wrong being a fangirl, but I was like, I, I need this community more than I need to be fanning over them <laughs> in a particular way. <clears throat> and so I remember thinking like, well, how do I do this? You know, I'm 20 something, I have no idea how to make friends. And I still say this to myself, like I'm in my mid forties, how do I make friends? You know, so it's still something that I ask myself again and again, and I have a strategy. Like I'm a July Leo, but I have a lot of Virgo in my chart. So I have like a, a strategy. And so for that, I was like, oh, I need to start making comments on the blog post. I need to start engaging, right? So engagement became a really important piece for me. And I remember, um, I would read like all the comments and I remember when I would like feel a feeling that was really visceral and that was the thing where I was like maybe I need to type something about this and so it started out as little as this made me feel my body tingle in a particular way right so it wasn't even anything beyond that one sentence that I would contribute and I think that's really how it came to be that they saw me engaging with their work and also my homegirl shit with like Stacy really also connected me to everybody else who goes to the allied media conference in the early 200 2000s um and many of us who were like way back when uh the allied media conference was this it's so fascinating to think about that historical memory but um yeah it was really so important for me to be clear about who I wanted to have relationships with. And I think that what's helped me, you know, 
I don't talk trash about my PhD experience unless I'm really talking about the one moment that kicked me out. Like that I will talk trash about because it was a trash experience. But I really feel smarter for being in a graduate program. I really feel like I built relationships with people. It was the first time that I saw white women like argue for me in a way that I'd never seen before where they were like, Bianca can't get this PhD. What does it mean for us that we can? You know, and really asked hard questions. Um, and so we also were trained, as I'm sure you were as well, around, well, maybe you were, I don't know, it feels like you were, um, around being intersectional scholars who were going to be able to understand this theory, this theory, this framework, and this practice that has been given to us by Black women. And we're gonna be able to incorporate it. We're gonna be able to use it. We're gonna be able to critique other things in a particular way. And so it was really like three years of being, um, you know, just supported and understanding and intersectional analysis in a way that I don't think exists um, in any other place outside of gender studies and women's studies. <laughs> so a lot of people misusing intersectionality that that just burns my biscuits, but that's another word. That's another story. Um, and so, you know, it really was for me understanding intersectionality as like building intentional relationships because it's about the relationships that we have with ourselves, with our identities. And it's also about the relationships that we choose to have with other people based on their identities and also how we navigate these systems together. Um, and when I started to incorporate a more clear understanding of ableism and disability, that expanded to me thinking, oh, you know, people always talk about the systems outside of our bodies. We never think about the systems in our bodies. And I started to be like, oh, you know, I have a compromised immune system that I inherited from my mother, which could be interpreted as like a form of intergenerational trauma or whatever. Um, but like I have, you know, so now I have a, do I have a compromised relationship with the outside world? Do I have a compromised relationship with myself? And so those questions really came up for me this past year and a half around the pandemic and what it means like I can't be around people who are not in my germ pod. Um, but I also was thinking about it in other ways where I was like, I don't have any friends who have survived the criminal incarceration system. You know, I don't have any friends who had these kinds of experiences. So I was very clear about the relationships I did have and the ones that I didn't. Um, and I feel like that was a good space for me to be because I wasn't ready to have friends who had different experiences. I was still unlearning the BS that I was socialized yes. to hold. Um, but, you know, I think an intersectional approach in the ways that I want to um, embrace intentionally what it means to live by these frameworks that have been given to us and not just because I think they're good and useful, but because I, I'm comfortable critiquing them. I'm saying, let me tell you when intersectionality doesn't work, y'all. And people being like ugh, clutching their pearls. And I'm like, it's a theory. Like, it's not going to solve all the things. <laughs> like, and that being something where people are like, what do you mean? And I'm like, intersectionality doesn't give you the answers to solve your problems. That's why it doesn't work for you. It, it shows you where power is being misused and oppression is occurring. <laughs> so like, what, what do you, like, you're already applying it wrong. If you're going into it thinking, oh, we're going to find all the answers by using this intersectional analysis. And I feel like that's really how it's been watered down. I can't think of any other theory or any other group of people who have offered us this, where people think, oh, I read, I, I read an article and I'll listen to a TED talk. Now I know how to do intersectional analysis. Come on. Come on. If that's not the most anti-Black misogynistic thing, <laughs> 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 you know, like, 
what? You know, I've never heard a psychoanalyst be like, oh, I just read this one book by Freud. Now I know everything. Like, it, no, it does not happen that and way. I read it one time and read it once. Mm -hmm. And now yes. they write one thing. Nah. Um, so yeah, so, I, so now I teach classes about intersectionality for sexuality and public health people because, I mean, as you know, they just get it wrong all the time. And the questions they ask me, I'm just like, oh, you didn't listen to anything I just said about building touchstone relationships. If your question, white person, is, but Bianca, how can I get more black people to come to my events? Why don't you start going to their events? Like, why you always got to bring us out of our communities to come to yours where we're not even comfortable, safe, want to be there? Um, you should show up to our stuff. You should come to our turf and engage with us. And that's really going to be what's useful and we're going to notice you. And then you need to start showing up consistently and then we'll start to trust you with small tasks like you know scribing or whatever for meetings or whatever um and so a lot of white people don't like to hear that but i'm like what do you think this is this is a lifelong process it doesn't happen overnight i can't just give you one magic thing um so yeah so i don't know if i've made too many fans <laughs> in my community about that i mean clearly some but um but yeah, I think an intersectional approach, being trained in that way, and also being really clear about what communities I wanted to be a part of, were so, so integral um, to my growth, to how I got here. People joke with me, they're like, Bianca, you know everybody some way. And, I, and it's like, well, what were you doing? Were you not on Twitter in 2008? <laughs> Where were y'all at? I was on Twitter in the 2010s. You know, Come it's, on. it's just like, what were y'all doing? And like, I get it if you were like a school athlete or whatever, that just wasn't my life. And so the internet really was. And so it was really connecting with people online and then meeting people in real life, right? So being on Twitter and um, engaging with people, following people, but also responding to them <clears throat> is something that I think was such a good strategy for me to understand early on, because now I'm real, real, um, <laughs> specific about who I follow and yes. I curate all my stuff you know I'll have it open you can follow me I don't care a bet but I'm only going to follow the people that I know in real life on like Instagram for example so I use social media in a very different way that <clears throat> is about community building and and that's what it is for me and I take a long time to follow people back you know it does happen but I first got to like understand what you're trying to do and i really have like a one strike rule if i see any kind of like <laughs> bs on on That's your it. i'm following you like <clears throat> i'm not doing it <laughs> i already did it before i've passed the torch to the other 20 somethings and this is the space that i want to curate for myself um how i met all these other people in real life was through interactions Yes. Well, I mean, that to me, the curation that you're talking about makes me think too about an, another question, which was going to be, how do you negotiate misogynoir in your space? But it, it sounds like you have a really good handle on that in that you are really diligent about who has access to you and what you are willing to entertain, what comes to you. Absolutely, especially for free. Like I'm clear <clears throat> that when I curate things on Twitter or Instagram, that's free labor that I'm offering people because I really wanna stay connected. I wanna see what Sadet's doing. I wanna see what Mala's doing. You know, I wanna see and engage with people in a particular way. Um, and I also wanna share what I think is useful information 
to share. Um, but when it comes to me showing up for people who need to learn something or who need some kind of correction, you got to pay for that. And so if you want to come to my class, great. There's a, there's a, we got payment plans, but you got to eventually pay the full amount. Um, and you know, when people pay to come and teach for me, I can have a little bit more compassion <laughs> in my approach. And so as an educator, um, you know, a lot of people like to approach education through like content-based understanding, which is great. It's a really traditional way of teaching. And that's just not my way. Um, so <clears throat> I like to do more historical elements. I like to bring in more visceral somatic responses that we're having to content. I like to objectify books. You know, I'm like, this isn't just a book. This is a object. Let's smell it. Let's touch it. You know, what does it mean to fondle the book? Really, really have a sensual experience with a book, um, which is rare because now everything's online. So we don't really do that too often, but I encourage <laughs> Um, and, you know, in those moments, it's really for me about creating a container or a space where people know you're going to mess up. I'm going to mess up. I'll tell you about how I've messed up. I'll tell you about whether or not there was repair in that mess up um, and what that looked like and whether accountability was just my responsibility or if it's a responsibility of everybody involved. And it's usually the latter. And yep. you can talk about how a lot of people aren't ready to go all in with what it means to do accountability work because it's not just one meeting, it's not just one circle, it's lifelong process. Um, so there's that that also I think shows up for me. And so when people, you know, I have a lot of white people that I train, which is fine. Like they got the money and then I got some people of color who come in later on, which is great too. And so for the classes that I offer, I attract the people of color who are not always welcome in other certificate programs that have these elitist requirements like oh you need a bachelor's degree or oh you need to have this kind of setup and i'm just like do you understand english do you, do you have an internet connection come on you know you can join come through um and and that was on purpose so i have a lot of sex workers who are participating and for the first time and like this is the first time i've been able to have this kind of content also educational experience that welcomes me in as someone who has knowledge and expertise and brilliance and wisdom to share um so that's really been amazing to experience um but i think i don't know if but's the right word but um you know when white people talk and they need correction i just lean on those group agreements i'm like listen we talked about um collaboration as being a guiding principle for this space and so what i hear you saying is you wanted to lean on a biomedical model and that's not what we're doing. You know, I talked to you about disability justice principles, like wholeness. We're going to recognize wholeness. And your question does not recognize people's wholeness. Your question believes that there's something broken about us. And so what what is it in you <clears throat> that makes you think you get to ask this intrusive question? Let's break it down. You know, it was the way you were socialized. And you get to make a decision about that. So I think it's important for people to see me do that, and um, especially other people of color but also to let them know like y'all ain't gotta do it i'm gonna do it and if something happens and i don't know about it back channel me but i'll take care of it and so i really curate the group agreements and also our um our guiding principles so that people know up front we are not going to allow you <laughs> to talk trash about this particular experience without you first understanding you're going to be accountable for your impact and that means we're not going to remove you from the space, but we're going to be like, yo, let's tell you, you know, 
let's just redirect. We have a feelings wheel. The words that you said were ableist. And I'm going to invite you to think about this. How is your ableism showing up? What does it mean for you to use these words? Um, and that just being a calling on for all of us uh, in the learning space. So for me, the content is there, but it's really about the process. Like, what is the process that we're engaging in together? And how are we moving through it together? How are we holding it? How are we experiencing it? And, and so I don't really always, collaborations are hard sometimes with people who don't understand that about me and who really come in with a very traditional Western linear way of knowing. And I'm just like, nah, like <laughs> that's not like, yeah, I'm facilitating this conversation, but like, I just gave you a definition for, you know, safety. Let's talk about what's missing. It's not the perfect definition. And a lot of people don't, they're like, why don't you just leave it like that? Give us a glossary and keep it moving. And it's like, you want to keep it moving, talk about safety, and you think you can create a safe space in your classroom? Are you kidding me? This is why you're not going to be <laughs> useful. And I can just tell you that harm has already been caused by you, and you probably don't even know it. Um, hmm. So, yeah, so I get, you know, I feel like I'm at that age where I'm just like, I'm just going to tell you how it is and not sugarcoat it and just be straight up honest with you. And but Bianca, Bianca. I no, don't you feel like you were always at that age? Yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I was about to say. There's a, like, <laughs> a little more finesse, maybe. <laughs> I now know to like lower the bass in my voice. There's <laughs> <Like, laughs> things that I know not to do now in the same way that I did before. Because the reception will be different. And, and sometimes I intentionally am like, oh, this person is going to hear me unless I really put it, some bass in my voice. And so being clear about the performance of teaching. <laughs> yes, yes. And outside of that performance, like how do you unwind and take care of yourself? How do you um, handle the way massage noir comes at you? I mean, it's one thing to be a teacher and understand that in a classroom context, people are learning. So massage noir, it's, it's there. But yeah. in terms of your day-to-day -day life, like, how are you negotiating those experiences? Yeah, I definitely do not see myself as an expert. So that's where I start first. So I'm like, I know a lot about this particular topic, but I'm not going to call myself an expert. Not because I don't think I, I don't have expertise, but it's not useful to the way that I want to move and build and educate and learn. Um, I definitely feel like I'm at that point in my life where it's hard for me to find trainings or professional development that doesn't feel like it's boring to me, right? And and I know that sounds like I have a little chip on my shoulder or whatever, but it, it also means that I have to go to like anthropology or communications or, you know, performance to get a different challenge, a deeper challenge. Um, so there's that part as far as like that to me is taking care of myself. How am I keeping my brain fresh and challenged? in a world where like it's a constant repeat of people misusing things um i think one of the things that's really come up over the past like five years for me and even longer but like more intentionally has been being clear about who am i citing and also how am i offering attribution which has always been something on my mind but i've been really intentional of just not citing white people I don't care who they are. I don't care what they've done. You all probably know about them, so I don't have to cite them. Um, and just being intentional, like I, you know, I don't refer to the Moynihan report. I refer to the black women who have already done the labor of challenging that, and they're going to be on my, you know, 
citation. And I'm going to say I learned from them, right? So also modeling for people that it's not um, an embarrassment. It's not something to be ashamed of, that you were born into the world without knowing <laughs> um, anything. And really being able to say, I learned because I was in these communities. I was challenged because people loved me in this radical way. And they were like, yo, Bianca, that's really fucked up. And let's talk about how it hurt me to hear you say that, you know, and having the opportunity to be like, thank you so much for loving me so hard that you say that to me out loud, that you say it to my face, that you're willing to hear my thank you and you're willing to like see if my behavior changes and still hold me accountable. And I think those are really self-care strategies for me is having people who have my front, back and sides, people who I can call on, even if I don't constantly call them. Um, I feel like I have a good community of those individuals. And then I also think about talking openly about colorism. There are not enough light-skinned people who are doing it and doing it well, to quote a light-skinned rapper, um, <laughs> dark-skinned singer. Um, you know, so really being clear about, um, you know, when people say to me, oh, you're colorist, I'm like, you're right, I am. <clears throat> Do you wanna share more with me about what you see coming up that might be helpful? And I notice how that's different for so many darker skinned people in the world, but also who are in my circle, but also in my community is where they've never had someone be like, you're right, I am. Um, <clears throat> thank you. And and are you open to a conversation? Because I'm open to listening. You know, those I think are moves that people aren't always willing to have. And I definitely wasn't always in the space. Um, so it is growth, it is, you know, transformation. But for me, it's also a way of talking about massage noir in the world, um, because I was raised to think in a white supremacist way. Like I was socialized in that way. I had parents who were immigrants from a colony of this country who bought into lighter skin is better. Uh, we are gonna try to pass for white. All of those pieces really showing up for me. And then me not having that opportunity because my features didn't fit into this coded whiteness and neither did my parents but nobody told them that um <laughs> all the time but that being a really important part of what it means for me to be honest to be open and also to recognize that like i'm always gonna have something that comes up like i'm not perfect and i learned that from our elders moya because we got elders that are on some shit and I, I, I'm, I'm always like, that's not the elder I want to be. So yes. <laughs> I'm going to learn not to do this and because I want to be this kind of elder. So it's also, I've seen the light skins and, you know, our delegation just be jerks all the time and, you know, rejection and like just all the things, you know, um, that show up that are not helpful and that are not rooted in trusting each other and believing each other when we say things um and not expecting people to talk with a, a soft little therapeutic tone that's not how i communicate with people on a regular basis so if someone's gonna say something to me i'm open to receiving it in a variety of different ways and i know that 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 helps de-escalate a lot of stuff <laughs> also saying thank you also helps de-escalate a lot of people's um stuff that comes up for them because they don't expect it because they've never been thanked for their brilliance. They've never been thanked for that kind of radical revolutionary love. Um, and they haven't been treated as human beings. And so 
people respond to that kind of approach in many different ways. But um, for the most part, it's been really beautiful. It's been really thoughtful. People, you know, um, they don't necessarily thank me for being open, but they're like, I'm glad you were open to this. I'm glad we could talk about this. And that to me is about what building relationships looks like. And you can't just show up for the joy and the happiness all the time. You gotta show up for the hard stuff and you gotta stick it out. And so for me, that's also how I've just really expanded my ideas of intimacy to include community love and to include friendships and to include lovers and maybe core partners and whatever else, co-parents. Um, and that's not really how I was raised either. So it's also trying things out and seeing what works um, and seeing how people respond to it as really being, you know, how we can challenge the stuff that comes at us. And so I feel really solid that I have a core group of people. Like I just imagine, you know, when I have hard days, I'm like, I got solid 20 people just surrounding me, you know, shoulder to shoulder or, you know, wheel to wheel, however it shows up, cane to cane. And, um, and that just helps ground me where I'm like, it's not just me here. Um, the ocean is one of my lovely places. And I'm, you know, I'm in Oakland now, but people don't float in the water here <laughs> like they did on the South and the East Coast. Um, so now I'm like, okay, I really need more floating. If I can't get to the ocean and dig my feet in the sand and look at the waves and remind myself I'm just a speck <laughs> in the universe, I need to float then, I need to feel weightless. And that to me is also a part of the care that I allow myself to not always feel so weighted or bogged down with like oppression and experience <laughs> and bullshit um, that I get to feel completely weightless. And being yes. in a disabled body, that's a huge thing <laughs> for me. So yeah. Do you know about floating like in flotation tanks? I have, but you know, it was all the rage in New York when I left. And so I haven't researched it. Have you tried it? before yes, I actually had a float session this morning wow which is so of course full circle that that's where we are I highly recommend and also I want to just thank you for your generosity and for how you model community and how you model showing up for your folks because mm -hmm. I think that has been one of the beautiful things that I've seen and noticed about you is that you know, your love, your idea of community is very much a verb mm -hmm. and it shows up in all of the things you do. So Bianca, if people want to find out more, learn more about what you're up to, where, where can they find you? Yeah, thanks, Moya. Well, because I tried to curate the Google search engines, um, you can really just put my first and last name and it'll show up. Um, but I have a website, which is myfirstandlastname.com. If you're interested in courses, because you want to pay me to, to learn from me, um, AntiUpPD, so it's A-N-T-E-U-P-P-D.com, has a full course and a certificate program as well. Um, and I'm on, you know, Twitter as Latino Sexuality, and I'm also on Instagram as Latinegra Sexologist. So, um, yeah, those are open accounts. So you're welcome to say hi. Come, you know, follow me. Know that it's gonna take me a minute to follow you back. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, you're welcome. I, I'm a, I'm accessible on purpose. Like, so I say that to people a lot. Sometimes people feel like, oh, you've been in the field for so long, I'm intimidated to reach out to you. 
And it's like, but I make myself accessible on purpose. Like you don't have to Google me and go through like a university system to get me. Like I'm open to you reaching out through my blogs, through my Twitter handles, whatever it is. Um, and I love to hear from people. Um, part of what I love to do is also support emergent professionals into the sexuality field. Um, so if anybody's listening, that's something that they're interested in, you're welcome to reach out to me. Um, and you're also welcome to reach out to me if you wanna talk about how I think Miguel the singer is a clay arc. And we could talk about that. <laughs> I see it. Yeah. I see it. Mm-hmm. Especially if he hopped off that, um, that stage. No, sir. <laughs> <laughs> the transformation wasn't done, but I saw it there. <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you so much. I hope you all have enjoyed listening to another episode of Misogynoir Transformed, the podcast. And yes, please, please, please come back and let me know what you think. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Misogynoir Transformed. Transforming Sajinoir, the podcast. I am your host, Moya Bailey. I want to also thank our producer, fabulous Jordan Myers, and you, listeners, for tuning in yet again. You can find all of the fabulous information mentioned in today's episode via the show notes and also a link to the transcript. Thanks, and we hope that you'll come back again. Bye.